Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, welcome to today's show. I'm Liz, and I'm joining you as usual from Central Virginia and the ancestral lands of the Monacan people. And as always, I am so glad that you are listening. And I'm wishing you good new moon vibes, too. And I just realized that in almost two years of hosting this podcast, I don't think I ever actually formally acknowledged in the podcast that new episodes are released every new and full moon. I know that I say it on social media a lot. So if you're following me there, you'll see it, but I don't think I, I don't think I've been saying it here. So if you have ever been listening and you're wondering, well, why isn't this podcast available? Like every other Tuesday or something like that. Now, you know why it's not just random. This is all part of my own years long effort to reorient myself to a more cyclical notion of time. So lucky you, you get to come along for the ride. So the new moon blessings to all of you. And with that, let's get started. So my guest today has been here before. In fact, her episode from last year remains one of my most listened to episodes ever. And while I'm fairly certain that our conversation is going to cover a lot of ground, the impetus for us coming back together today is the ocean. It's magic and miracles, it's connection to the sacred feminine, to women's bodies and our lived experiences. Lucy H. Pierce is the author of the new book, She of the Sea, a deep dive into our many connections to the magic of the ocean. And yeah, that's a bad pun. I couldn't resist it, the deep dive. I just, I had to do it. She's a best-selling author, a vibrant artist, respected publisher and editor, and her work focuses on self-knowledge and healing through creativity, archetypes, and cyclical living. She gives voice to the soul, the spiritual, the liminal, the darkness, and discomfort and the magical in the midst of the mundane. Often described as raw, authentic, and life-changing, her work encourages authentic paths to self-expression and is celebrated particularly by highly sensitive and neurodivergent women. She of the Sea is her 10th nonfiction book. Other award-winning books include Burning Woman, Creatrix, She Who Makes, and Medicine Woman, Reclaiming the Soul of Healing. Lucy is the founder of Womancraft Publishing, and mother of three. And she's joining us today from the South coast of Ireland, where her home is. Lucy, thank you so much for being with me today. Let's see, I might start. I am so glad to be back with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, and you have written a most magical book. I was gonna say, we don't have to, you know, we have have covered your, your, you know, I think I, with, with everybody, usually I, I, we talk about kind of your spiritual background and stuff. And so if you haven't heard Lucy on our first episode together, you go back and listen, cause there's so much amazingness there. Um, but yeah, you have written this really beautiful and wonderful book. And as soon as I heard of it before, um, even before I'd read it, I knew I wanted to have you back. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I was like, I know it's going to be good. So (laughs) we're going to have to do this. Um, 
pressure. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. So I, I wonder if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about, about this book and how it came into being. It's really, it's quite magical and it covers a lot of ground. So I just, I'd love to hear about how it, how it came into existence. It does. It covers a lot of ground. We've got um, selkies and mermaids and my own personal um, relationship to the sea. Um, I live here on the uh, south coast of Ireland in a little village um, which is on, you know, right on the on the sea. Um, really the the basis of the book was was an exploration from every angle that i could and i mean i'm talking every angle we're talking minerals and seaweed and on a soul level and a spiritual level and an evolutionary level what is the call of the sea because i just noticed again and again women talking in this kind of way about the sea about their relationship to the sea about how swimming in the sea or walking beside the sea called to them when they were feeling very emotional, when they were grieving, and how they found it very healing. And I really wanted to explore what that was, what was happening, because I experienced it myself. And I just, it seemed to be something more than than you could find in other landscapes necessarily. So it was, it was that question of what has called not just women but humans to the sea not just now but throughout our history so that's the kind of the big view of what I was doing and why I was doing it but on another level it was a very very personal exploration of where do I belong how do I belong as somebody who is part English, part Irish, doesn't quite fit in either place. Somebody who who inhabits a lot of liminal spaces, you know, as a woman, as a woman on the spectrum. I've, I've always had this feeling of not really belonging and this feeling of being extra alive when I am walking the beach or when I'm swimming in the sea. And it's this desire to, to, to understand what that magic is that that's inherent in it um can i read you a bit from it because it really kind of this is from the middle of the book but it really speaks to that quest that i was undertaking which was connected on one level to the what i call the outer sea which is the ocean but also it was a real quest for the inner sea you know my inner oceanic self my dark un untapped unknown places that I needed to deep dive into but that I'd always been scared of yes I would I would love that so this part is called reclaiming and it's from the part of the book that I tried taking out again and again because I was too scared to share it it was the part about god goddess magic the sacred which felt so scary to try and put into words so I am reclaiming my belonging to something deeper than dry land, reclaiming the magic of turquoise and black, shimmer and sparkle, the dark unknown, reclaiming this vital aspect of myself that has nearly blossomed many times, but has shut down through busyness and fear of others and living in a small community and professional visibility. 
I am discovering the currents of my own soul, reclaiming what living in flow could feel like, be like, here and now, day to day. I am reclaiming my connection to myself through the natural world, reclaiming magic as my natural religion, reimagining the divine in the fluid feminine, and knowing this as tangible in the world. This knowing of what the sea means to me rises to the surface. It feels as though I am being immersed, submerged, flooded with an oceanic longing or knowing or remembering. The sea is leaking into me and I into her. As I remember in my surface self what I have never forgotten in my depths. Knowing on every level of my being that it is real, that it is not wrong or to be feared, nor am I making it up. And then just skipping over to the, the bottom of the next page, just this, this expression of what soul, what God, what magic, what goddess, what the sacred feminine is for me. Over the years, I have come to understand that goddess and magic are not dark and light, good and evil. This is a myth of patriarchy to keep us, especially women, from direct engagement with the power of nature and the magic inherent in our own souls. They are one and the same. They are yearning for us as much as we are for them. Mm. And for me, that is the crux of my work and the crux of the reclaiming that that happened in she of the sea is this acknowledgement that this relationship i have with this for me it's still kind of quite an unnameable force but which has many many feminine qualities which i celebrate and focus on that this is a two-way relationship and that it, whatever it is, is longing to come through us as much as we are longing for it. Mm -hmm. Yes, such a beautiful, powerful reflection. And I guess that, you know, this is kind of leading me into, you know, one of my questions for you, which is, this is, this is your 10th book, right? Um, mm. And which is amazing. <laughs> 10 books in how many years, Lucy? <laughs> In, in 10 years. Wow. Oh, a book a year. No big deal. Just raising children. I mean, it sounds and like, a, no, it sounds like a year, a book, but it's not because the first lot came in a, in a flurry. So obviously they'd been building up and then came out quite fast. So one was like a, a compilation of blog posts and articles. Another was a girl's version of the women's book. And then there were two um, full Circle Health and, and its accompanying journal that came together, you know, in one year too. So the big books take kind of between three and five years to write each. And I'm usually working on several at the same time. So it's just, you know, they're coming out, you know, one to two years apart, but I'm not managing to write a book a year, <laughs> just to kind of reassure you. 
That, that does make me feel better about myself. Thank you. <laughs> what I'm, you know, what, what I'm capable of producing. <laughs> uh, well, I, I wanted to ask you though. So you've now written 10 books and I, I think you're speaking to this a little bit in what you just read and what you just shared, but I'm, I'm curious how these experiences have kind of shifted the way, you know, and experience this, the sacred feminine. I realize that's kind of a big question. So we could, we could just keep expanding with she of the sea and how that one shifted. But I, but I am curious from like the moment that, you know, when you began to where you are now, how that's, how that's changed for you. Mm. I love that as a question because it's, it really has changed a lot. So I started out writing books for women about women and that was my motivation there wasn't whilst all my writing is always what I guess you could call soulful in that it's self-reflective and it's reflective of my inner process um, and the inner process um, that aspect of my writing has has shifted to become the main focus like previously my books were more practical and more about our day-to-day lives like they've always been about cycles and creativity and women and women's bodies um and our relationship with the unseen in terms of our cyclical nature and in terms of our creativity absolutely but they have become more and more personal and more and more daring for me in terms of entering parts of myself that have scared me that I've tried to shut down that I've I have learned to silence and in finding vocabulary for that which is still vocabulary that makes me uncomfortable a lot of the time you know I'm, I'm still reaching for what that word is for goddess stroke god stroke magic what is that that I'm writing about because I'm not somebody who has like a devotional practice to a goddess that isn't my path my relationship is far more fluid and flow is the term which for me most sums up both the state of beingness in which I experience that connection to the sacred and the divine, but also my experience of what the divine, the sacred is. And flow is naturally, uh, it has been associated with throughout history, the feminine, like the feminine is seen as, as being in flow in fluid, whereas the masculine is seen as um, solid and, um, you know, unbending and, and that. So, what I am exploring is very much women and how women have been treated, how our bodies have been treated, how we relate to our bodies, how we relate to our creativity, how we relate to our spirituality. But knowing how to put that in terms which isn't alienating for myself or other people in a way that I can bridge that gap between what I know, what I've lived and my experience and 
the un the the basic unknowable unspeakable nature of that it i really want to find words which truly reflect my lived experience as a woman in a woman's body and to not be alienating with that because when i started womancraft i mean it's quite a um ironic let's it's quite ironic that I'm now you know most of my books are about and the books I publish are about goddesses and witches and magic because that wasn't what I was starting off intending to do or attempting to do like I was trying to take stuff from the more alternative field and combine it with the mainstream which is very much how I think how I live get the best of both worlds um but very much I not use the word goddess or God or magic. Like I wanted to, to make it acceptable. I wanted to, to find a way that I could, that I could share this without having to use that terminology, which many people don't identify with. And I found as I've gone on, that I've had to use that language because it's the only language, the language of the sacred feminine is the only language that really works for what I'm talking about. And yet still, I struggle with it. Like my neighbor, I was going over to feed her cats and um, she, she said, oh, you're doing a podcast interview, what's it about? And even then I was struggling to say to her, you know, it's about the goddess because part of me inwardly cringes because I know how it seems in the mainstream. I want to be taken seriously. And yet for a lot of people in the mainstream, this is something that they don't even have a beginning of a handle on. Like what, what you mean when you say goddess, what you mean when you say sacred feminine. Right. Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. This is, and it's something that I struggle with too. I mean, my gosh, I, I, I turn over language in my head all the time. Like, how do I explain people what I write about, what I do in a way that is not off-putting, but also there's, I, I think, and I'm curious your thoughts on this too. I think that because we are, have, we have, and I'm speaking of um, my culture, but we have been kind of locked into this, this, this very binary way of thinking and patriarchy reinforces that, that when you even use the word goddess, it, first of all, there's the weird factor, right? For some people, mm -hmm. but there's also yeah. an automatic yeah. reflex. You're talking about the opposite of the male God, which is, is so not yeah. what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I, and I, so I, I feel that. And I, I think about the fact that language as a construct is primarily patriarchal, you know, like it's, it, it arose in a time of patriarchy and the English language that I use now to speak is certainly that. And so, um, you know, there's, there's actually times where I wish we had a language that didn't involve speaking at all you know, like we'll get back to tele telepathy or something. Like I can just beam it over to you and you get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I think one of the things for me that has been very helpful, I'm going to go for two actually, <laughs> is one moving beyond words. So I do a lot of work around word and image. So moving between image and word, word and image. 
Um, there's a beautiful Meister Eckhart um, quote that says when the soul wants to learn something new, it throws up an image. And this I very much know as truth. So like, we communicate so much in our culture through language. You know, I'm a writer and therefore I'm expected to be able to put together coherent sentences and be able to express in language what I'm experiencing, what I think, my arguments. But before language comes image, an image is the soul's language to us. And I believe that uh, the sacred speaks to us, the divine speaks to us through image primarily. We hear voices in our heads too, absolutely, but the, a lot of the breadcrumbs on our paths are images, um, archetypal images. Um, things that we can see around us in our daily world, but that also have deeply symbolic meanings and have done for the whole of humanity. Um, and so image is, is one key way that I can know and I can share a knowing. And if you have also experienced that, you get that knowing from seeing that image. And in that sense, we can leave behind words that have various historical prejudices or misinterpretations and we can connect soul to soul through the portal of the image. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, whilst I struggle to talk in the language that feels very polluted in terms of priestesses and religion and witches and goddess because there is so much history around them even though I feel deeply in myself that that is what I am that is what I'm doing the language I find so problematic because of the history whereas in my body in my lived experience of the feminine what the feminine means to me how I have been initiated to it over and over again in deeper and stronger ways during this process, which I record in my writing and in my artwork, like that lived experience, there's no shame around that. There's no denial around that. That is my absolute core truth and that I know to the depths of my soul. And whether, whether you're in interested in that or not whether you can identify with that or not it doesn't matter to me because that I know is truth mm -hmm. and that is truth that has come to me and through me through my shifting of how I interact with and understand my female body and what it means to be a woman in this world so like that is baseline feminine which I use big f for that I am experiencing flowing through me and so people can poo poo that if they want they can disagree with my language whatever that's fine but I know that as truth and that is that is the process that I have been involved with in an intimate way for the last decade um 
in an ongoing initiatory experience. And a lot of people, you know, they they might join a coven or do a priestess training or whatever, and they will be guided in that initiation. They will kind of have tests and trials and kind of steps laid out for them. Whereas for me, I'm doing this solo, me and whatever it is that I'm dealing with, this this sacred source flow whatever it is and so it's showing up in my daily life it's showing up in very real tangible ways without anyone to say aha now here's your next step on the initiation like suddenly it's there and I'm like okay I'm going to deal with this um, after having been shaken and broken by it and so that is what is at the root of all of my books really is that process that and ongoing initiatory process and the steps that it has taken yeah well the other thing that is coming up for me as you're describing all that and I'm thinking to you know your your most recent book too is is our is our relationship with nature and um you know as you were describing the initiatory process for you I'm like yes I I know what you mean and for me um much of it and the 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 continued deepening into the wisdom that I call sacred feminine is coming from my relationship to nature and continuing to see myself as part of, you know, and a sister to it, like an integral or or that I'm just deeply, deeply connected to it. And so I, I wonder sometimes if the history of the suppression of women and anything divinely connected to female force, you know, in European history, which of course is spilled out into my history. If, if that has shaped the need to talk about this in a specifically sacred feminine way, and if that had not happened, would I be talking about something different, such as animism? Would I be using different language to describe this? Because for me, the, the, entryway into understanding the concept of eminence and that the divine is present in every living thing, certainly the ocean, as you write about, but like, you know, the the trees and the, the leaves that are so beautifully falling from the trees where I live right now, that concept was opened up to me through my inquiry into the sacred feminine. But had I been able to keep some kind of indigenous roots that I am certain my ancestors had, would I would I have known and spoken about it differently? Would I be, would I be saying something else? And I I don't know. I don't know if you want to respond to that or how that lands with you, but that is, that's something I've been, I've been pondering for a while. So I, I, I feel, Oh, trying to reach into the place where the words are, (laughs) but my head is in the, in, 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 in what you're saying. Yeah, and take take your time. Yeah. So what I feel very strongly is that the honest answer is we don't know mm. because so much of our history as women engaged with our spirituality in a way that is natural to us has been punished forbidden 
silenced, obscured, and shamed. So it is so hard to know how this how this would be if if we didn't have that personal and historic blockage. But I do feel like I, you see throughout cultures, throughout history, throughout the world, that women were revered as having some sort of direct connection, especially through their bodies, especially through their sexual organs and life-giving organs, that was just taken as read. It was just understood that this is the way things are and that I feel I feel like our culture has lost that so much because we deny its power. It's like we know it on one level and yet we deny it on another. And so there's kind of all this kind of oh I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, I think you are. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess I feel all that. And I, I'm wondering if and again, maybe we're just talking about language here too, of like, are we would I call this the sacred feminine or would I know the, that inherent connection that you just described? Like, would I just know that I would know that in my being. And so I would know it so intimately that I would know it as part of, of the sacredness of all, as opposed to even Oh, see, I'm struggling with words here too, but even feeling <laughs> the, the need to lens it as the sacred feminine. Do you know what I mean? Because I think there's... Yeah, yeah, no, I do. And I mean, you know, a lot of time I get kind of kicked back in my books because uh, either people say, well, you know, why are you just writing? for women or why are you just writing about the feminine and you know there's a kickback against genderizing the sacred and for me it's necessary as a rebalancing for what has gone before historically and a reclaiming of what has been lost but for me, and this might put me in, you know, in a small minority of your interviewees, and I'm aware of that. Um, I don't want to make a pariah of myself. But, yeah, I mean, for me, I don't need the sacred to, to be gendered. I don't need it to, you know, the ultimate power and presence to be a goddess. But I do need the sacred to be honored within the feminine and the feminine to be honored within the sacred i need both of those things because i grew up like a parched person in the desert desert unaware of why and the why was because those things were lacking so what my work is seeking to do is to to rebalance that for myself and for us as women to to enable us to do a personal and a, a group reclaiming. But I don't need to ultimately prove that the goddess is the one, the only and the ultimate. But whatever that force is that sometimes I name God, sometimes I name goddess, sometimes I name magic. That is real for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm learning for that to be a larger and larger presence in my 
all aspects of my living and my life. And I feel like most indigenous cultures do that as basic, like that is how they they are human. They, that is at the basis of it. And we have become so stuck in dogma and intellectualization and being cut off from our bodies and arguing about the tiny meanings of, you know, this word against that word, that we've lost that basic stuff. So what I'm trying to relearn is that basic stuff. And in order to be able to get to that basic stuff, I've got to unlearn a huge amount. I've got to unlearn shame around my breasts, around my vagina, around my vulva, around my sexuality, around what it means to disagree with someone as a woman, what it means to speak up about something that I believe in, even though you don't believe in it. Um, all of those things have to be unlearned and they are all feminine things that have been shut down, silenced and shamed. So the route to my access point to whatever this life force mystery is that is longing for relationship with all of us just as much as we are longing for it relationship with it is through this female body and therefore there is a lot of work around being a woman and what is seen as feminine in our culture that needs unblocking there are so many what I call forbidden fruits for me. So many things that I'm not allowed to want, that I'm not allowed to do, which I have internalized from our culture, which I'm still having to challenge on a daily basis. And those things, there's far more of them for women, I feel like. And for men, more of them are around the feminine within themselves. So therefore, what we're dealing with is the sacred and is to do with the feminine but you don't necessarily have to put the two together you don't have to believe in a goddess if you don't want to yes is my my end all but i love and am deeply empowered by the very human reaching for some way of expressing that which we do through art and like for me those little goddess figurines from tens of thousands of years ago are so powerful there is something in that desire to create an image of what fertility or power or whatever it is looks like for us and be able to hold that in our hand that part of goddess culture is really vital for me oh yeah that seeing the sacred in the body of the life-giving body of the female form is deeply powerful because because at the end of the day all life relies on creativity relies on fertility re re relies on and this is where we get into tricky territory now with with gender issues obviously that you know it's not all women giving birth now but historically, we could say that it was. Right, right. And therefore, to see this sacred as a life-giving force, to see that in the body of a woman is powerful. And to, to be able to, like, it is just so the opposite of the story that those of us who grew up around or in 
Judeo-Christian background have been told, you know, in that the the life-giving force is male and the woman is lesser. Whereas when we when we enable and allow ourselves to see the power, the magic, the unseen mystery in the life-giving force that the, the female, the feminine has, there is some sort of baseline primal reconnection to that power that happens internally to us that feels like it has been sliced off by the other story. The other story makes us scared of that power, makes us ashamed of it, makes us hide it, makes us silence ourselves, keep ourselves small. Whereas that acknowledgement of that power, of that life-giving force coming through us Mm -hmm. is is big when we directly like not in an intellectual sense but directly through our bodies experience that coming through us that changes the whole game mm-hmm. this all feels so in alignment with where i think i i am at right now too and i as you were talking i was having the thought of um of future generations and how sometimes i think about what i'm doing here with this podcast and, and, and other, you know, work that I do and, and trying to bring this emphasis back to the, to the sacred feminine specifically. And, and sometimes I think about, you know, if we collectively, those of us who are doing this work, uh, do our work well, like may our grandchildren and great grandchildren and whoever never have to talk about it in this way because it is known yeah. in their bones. Yeah. Like they don't, they don't have to, like there's a, a reintegration. So if, if, if what I am doing in, you know, however many years is completely obsolete because we have integrated what we needed, then how beautiful is that? How, I mean. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, the time when women craft publishing isn't needed because everybody knows how women's bodies work. We know our magic. We know our history. We understand the witch wound. We understand the shaming that's happened. You know, then we can just be history. And that's fabulous. Mm -hmm. We will have done our work. So much. The other thing that was coming up as you were talking is, and this kind of takes me back to your She of the Sea book, is you know, there's so many wonderful things that you're recounting and there's these great stories from other women about what the the sea and the ocean means to them. But I was thinking that um, so much of my religious experience growing up was this very rigid, judgmental kind of thing. It's a either or uh, kind of experience of the divine, like this is divine and this is bad. (laughs) And yeah, Right. And you just got to, and, and you're never going to be divine. So you're just going to keep mucking it up. So you just got to keep apologizing for your sins and then come back to the divinity. But the, one of the teachings for me that the sacred feminine has offered me is this idea of yes. And yes, this is sacred. And this is sacred too. This is challenging and this is a gift. This is awful. And there is something sacred about this too, because there is nothing that isn't sacred. And 
that was a message I actually got from the sea at a very challenging time in my life. I was sitting and looking at the ocean and, um, you know, I was really trying to leave my old life behind my corporate life. And, um, and that was very difficult. It sounds small, but it wasn't, it was, it was the loss of identity it was loss of income. It was loss of relationships that I had spent years building. It was a big deal. And, um, and so I, I was sitting and crying and staring at the ocean, feeling into this. And the words that I received were all things are true. All things are well, yeah. all is ebb and flow, ebb and flow, ebb and flow. And that was such a powerful lesson to me of this way of being, you know, this yes. And like, yeah, yeah. this sucks is bad. And all is well, all shall be well, you know? So I don't actually for know me, how I got here for what you said, really but kind of... <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. For me, that is really the kind of the, the, the double sidedness the paradoxical nature of goddess flow is that is that both and thing which we again don't get in judeo-christian things it's very much black or white good or bad good or evil um we we, we don't have that ability to hold two extremes at once and and just see that they are not even two, two sides of the same coin, but they are two aspects literally of, of the same thing. We just don't, we don't have a grounding in that. And so we, we have, we are taught to move away from, to shut down, to shame, to silence that which we identify as bad and to move towards and embrace and focus on only that which is good which then leads us, you know, so often to feeling hard done by, like we're victims, um, like the world or people are out to get us when actually what is happening to us is, is, is life, is the process of life, which has, you know, both the darkness and light in it, the both and, and, the sea, as you say, with the ebb and flow is just such a good teacher of that, that things are always in flux, always in flow. You know, we like to to hold on to these kind of moments of, you know, this is how it is. But actually, no, things are always shifting, always changing. Things are never the same from one moment to another. It's our minds that make it so and, and fix it in as as though they're these these points are unchangeable and untouchable when actually no things are always in flux and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about shape shifting and mm -hmm. women because this is a, a thing that I come to a lot in the book is there are so many myths and stories around women connected to the sea so selkies who are um seal women from the celtic tradition who can can come onto land if their skin their, their seal skin is off and be women but who have a longing to go back to be in the sea to be a seal again the the idea of the mermaid with you know half woman half fish we have a lot of these 
myths, the sirens who are half bird, half woman. There's a lot of this idea of being neither one thing nor another, being both and connected to women and connected especially to women who live in and around this, the ocean, this ability to be both and. Um, and it's something that I experienced previously, not as something magical and wonderful, but as kind of a curse for me, because I would find myself constantly shape-shifting, constantly not really knowing who I was, where I belonged. And a lot of women experience this just throughout their menstrual cycles. Like you'll, you'll feel one thing, you know, kind of all strong and powerful and creative, you know, when you're ovulating. And then suddenly a few days later, you're kind of in a puddle on the floor because the world feels like it's ending because of the hormonal pull of your inner tides and yet our culture tells us you should be one thing you should be you should have this persona this shell which should be you and should be recognizable and solid and as women we often experience ourselves as anything but we experience ourselves in constant flux and flow in constant neither one thing nor the other and so we often take on the message that this is bad and wrong um, and that we should just be one thing. And what the teaching of the sea and the feminine very much is, is no, this, this ebb and flow, this ability to shapeshift is not a curse, is not something bad or wrong, but is in fact our power. It is, it is the magic within us that we can shift between being lots of different things and in order to reclaim that we have to find the places where we get shape-shifted beyond our will so it's the difference between choosing to dive down underwater like as a as a free diver and holding your breath and going down and seeing what's under there versus being pulled down by a riptide you're not in control of the riptide so if you're not in control of your shape shifting if it's happening to you all the time because of trauma um because of illness then it can feel really disempowering whereas if we own that shape shifting nature and don't shun it and we're not being constantly impacted by traumas, then we have the ability to use that shape-shifting magical ability, which seems to be, most cultures agree, inherent in woman. I love that. I love that. You know, I was thinking, <laughs> it came to me as you were sharing that, that um, oftentimes if I've met people only once or twice, um, they don't recognize me. And it really used to bother me. Like, am I forgettable? That's so funny. I didn't recognize you either when we started this call. <laughs> See, it happens a lot. And I, I've, yeah. I've taken yeah. it quite, quite personally, you know, yeah. like, it, yeah. So for listeners here, we always, you know, I, I only record the audio, but I usually pop on the video so we can say hello to, to each other, whoever I'm speaking to, at least for a bit. But yes, it's, it's, it's bothered me. You know, I'm like, am I forgettable? Like, do people just not find me interesting? Am I, do I have a forgettable face? No, you're a shapeshifter. I, I, I like this reframe very much. <laughs> that feels better. <laughs> well, I guess I'm thinking too of it being a source of power, you know, like oh. um, 
like uh, I, I think there's so many sources of power that we have that we are, um, you know, that we have we've been. Well, I mean, it's been frankly dangerous to claim them in the past, so we've maybe rightfully shut them down. Yeah. Because I can also think of this idea of shape shifting, how very dangerous that is to a patriarchal model that wants to believe it's built on a foundation of unshakable stone. You know, like that just flies yeah. in the face of it for sure. But, but you know, in the same way that you're talking about a diver, you know, who's choosing to dive deeply, I'm thinking of you know even just in perhaps the more mundane, like you know, your your life in the the business world, perhaps where you've got a kind of put on this cloak of whatever, whatever it is, you know, I, I feel like I sound very negative to it because that's the life I left. So no offense to anybody, you know, if that is your life, um, but how there's a way in which you can do that. Um, if it's by choice and you want to, uh, that's very empowering yeah, and can change that environment, but you have to want it. You have to really want it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so this kind of leads nicely on to, being neurodivergent, so I, I've been diagnosed as autistic, and I'm pretty sure that I have ADHD as well. Um, one of the main reasons why women do not get diagnosed as, as being on the spectrum um, when they are children or even, you know, as, as women until they collapse is that we are very good at masking. We are uh, little girls and women seem to learn how to to mask far better than boys do and so that is why boys get diagnosed as autistic whereas girls manage to slip under the radar so as an autistic woman I have this additional ability to kind of to camouflage to hide to mold myself to be like those around me to stay safe um and so that again it makes one of the reasons why this book was so scary for me was because I was exploring like what it was to be neurodivergent and that feeling of vulnerability um, when I'm speaking openly about a part of myself that for the rest of my life I've tried to hide is the same as speaking about God or magic. It's a part of my life that I've kept very private because it doesn't feel safe to talk publicly about it. And I think a lot of people can identify with that, you know, the most vulnerable parts of ourselves, parts that we're worried that if that bit got shamed, it would get us right in the guts. Like it would, it would destroy our core selves, not a persona, not some, not a performance, but our core, core selves. And so we learn very early on, neurodivergent or neurotypical, we learn to hide and protect that part of ourselves and, and very much keep up with the social expectations and cultural expectations around us. Mm -hmm. Well, and this makes me think of a bit of uh, about our, our first conversation that we had on this podcast last year. And and you've written about this too, about this, this idea of um, how, how challenging it can be to be seen and heard when we are stepping out of the, you know, whatever, the, I'm, I'm using air quotes with the norm or the mainstream. Yeah. And 
And you actually, I wrote down a, a quote from She of the Sea about this that, that speaks to this to me, where you said, I had to confront time and again my internalized dogmas about not speaking about the sacred or magical with my female voice. I had to confront the shame that the silence brings if you are not writing from the role of the expert, a priest or academic, but rather from lived experience. And I think, you know, we could expand that to, to include all of what you were just talking about. But I, what I'm curious about is, you know, and, and especially what you're saying regarding neurodivergence, is there catharsis in moving through this in being seen or is it always just really challenging? So I, I guess the question is, does this process get easier for you or, you know, in regards to neurodivergence, is it always, is it always hard? Uh, what is that, what is that experience like for you as you kind of step into that fear and speak and write? Mm. Okay. Both and <laughs> both and is, is what it is. It's both freeing and wonderful to have a context within which I fit and I'm not an automatic flawed failure, which I've felt myself to be the whole of my life um, because, because I've found the parameters within which, within which I can function and work and be seen and judged fairly um, so that is freeing, but it's scary, like talking about the sacred feminine is scary. It totally depends on what the person listening to you and engaging with you associates with autism or associates with the sacred feminine. Mm. So it's totally about their baggage and how much of their baggage you're going to have to deal with and how up for it you're feeling about defending yourself explaining yourself justifying yourself and I've got to the stage where I've got really clear that I'm done apologizing for my core being <laughs> I'm really done with it I've spent a lifetime explaining and apologizing for who I am and how I am and for how I feel and what I believe and maybe it's just the turning 40 thing people warn me that <laughs> turning 40 you just you, you have a much lower bandwidth for caring what other people think but that I feel like I've done enough of that now and now I just get to be me it doesn't make it less scary I'm still really scared of other people's responses because that to me is unpredictable and makes me feel inherently unsafe because I find it hard to read a lot of social cues to know how people are going to respond to know how people are going to interpret me um how I'm going to come across but I know I'm done with apologizing for the baseline of who and what I am well that's beautiful may we all get to that point I guess. Have I made it sound too easy? Because it's not easy. I still, <laughs> I still feel deeply uncomfortable internally, but on a conscious level, I've decided that I don't, as standard, owe an apology 
from my beingness. Yeah. No, I, I would imagine that is a hard one, you know, and yeah. it only yeah. comes through uh, repeated opportunities to feel like you have to apologize. And then the deep work that it takes to do to sit down and go, wait a minute. No, I don't. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I deeply, I think all humans, what we want most is to be understood and accepted for who and what we are. Like we baseline want to be seen and heard and loved and accepted. And when what you are, and how you are and who you are is unacceptable on a baseline level to your society because it's not right according to what normal is and how you should be that's just that's so basic it's so primal it's so hard to be that just wrong even though you're trying with all your might to be loved and seen and right and you there is this baseline reason that you can't (laughs) just shit um and so you know the whole then being interested in women's issues and the sacred feminine and it's like that adds another layer to that it's like oh this too like couldn't I just be interested in something and fight for something that's a bit easier (laughs) I feel like I've got enough in this bag with just being me on this planet without being into the the weird and the wacky and the woo-woo Right. Oh, yeah. I I so understand that. Well, I feel like this is a nice um this is a nice segue into something else that I know you wrote about in She of the Sea and and that is the idea of well, for me it feels like a nice segue. You can tell me if it works for you or not. But um you know this idea of creating sanctuary, oh. right? Like cuz we are <laughs> I don't know these these conversations just uh, they fill my cup so much because I'm you know I get to to speak with kindred spirits and and have these conversations that just really feed my soul and yet then you know I mean I walk out in the world too <laughs> uh, I'm my life is not you know is surrounded by people who want to talk about witches and magic and and the divine feminine all the time. I don't live in that magical place. Um, so me neither. <laughs> I wish I did. Like that's the world I'm trying to create, but <laughs> Oh, totally me too. That is womancraft. That is my books. That is like I have built a community that I can that I can just I don't need apologies and I don't need explanations that I can just dive into this because we all know how exciting and important and how much it matters. But yeah, the rest of the world nah. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So I guess this question is, you know, the idea of sanctuary and what does that mean to you and how can it nourish and feed us in in the reality of of the way and how we we must live to survive at this particular time. Can I go back to She of the Sea to to share that because yes. I this is this is where your question is coming from and this is where it's rooted for me. So I'm going to read you a little bit from it about what and why sanctuary. It's called The Road Home. I see the birds approaching as I drive down the bog road, clouds and flocks and murmurations of birds coming towards me. I follow them down the long winding boreen where this book started, its hedges now bare and brown. I park in the empty beach car park, waiting for the icy rain to stop. It slows to a soft mist. Then the sun breaks through, and what was previously grey and overcast sparkles in the low white rays of the midwinter sun. 
Flock after flock of birds keep flying over, a graceful group of grey-coloured doves, black rooks, the graceful white arcing of gulls, and higher up, the honking bees of migrating geese. They are coming to the bird sanctuary, sanctuary, a place of both sacredness and safety. This is what the beach has always been for me. This is what it is for so many of us that live here, a place of sanctuary. We are so blessed to have it, even in these ever more, especially in these ever more turbulent times. We have a protected space for the birds. But I believe they are also holding space for us. And it's that formation of bubbles of sanctuary space, sacred space, safe space in our world, which is so vital. We have them in wildlife sanctuaries, like that bird sanctuary we have just beside our house. We have it in red tent spaces, in many sacred buildings, churches, temples. There is this deep longing and always has been in the human spirit for for a place of sanctuary. And a person can be a place of sanctuary too, our, our soft place to fall. You know, it might be our partner or our best friend or our child, but a place where we can, in my mind, I, I, I look at it as curling up in the palm of the goddess, where we mm. can just be safely held, where we can allow everything to fall away and to feel safe and safely held and in the presence of something greater than ourselves. And I feel as the world gets crazier and crazier and louder and scarier in so many ways, the most precious thing we can do is to create sanctuary spaces, first of all, for ourselves or just to reclaim them for ourselves and then for our, you know, our families, our friends, our communities. And in our Western culture, we've learned a lot that that a sanctuary space must be man-made. It must be built. It must be, you know, consecrated. Whereas actually what those of us who are involved in in more pagan, animistic, sacred feminine beliefs are really reclaiming an understanding is that sanctuary can be found pretty much anywhere in nature. Anywhere in nature can be a sacred space for us. There doesn't need to be any physical structure there. And it enables that two-way connection that I spoke about at the very beginning, that that thing that is longing for us that we are also longing for. And enabling ourselves to have a place of sanctuary, both outside our homes and within our homes, and then within our own bodies, is I've discovered the work that I've really been doing these last few years is is that creation of sacred and safe space because that's where the magic happens that's where the communion happens yeah I love that 
And especially the idea of that sanctuary safe space within ourselves. I think I, I would imagine that perhaps that's the idea behind uh, self-care, which that term has just gotten really commercialized as you know, mm. we, t- we tend to do, right? Like we tend to, what can we sell to that, you know? Um, but the, the idea of the sanctuary, both outside ourselves, but within ourselves just feels so, so powerful to me. I feel like this is a really good place to stop too. And I'm like, just mm. wanting to, to wish it everyone that, you know, that would truly would be my wish for everyone that we had that sanctuary, that safe space within ourselves and, uh, outside of ourselves too, um, you know, to go to and nurture ourselves. So I certainly wish that for all the listeners. And for you, Lucy, I know you've got it. <laughs> you've written about it, which is quite lovely. But it's still accessing it. It's still when the wild winds are blowing in your head, the ability to access that, you know, when, when all is crazy outside you, the ability to access that is still challenging, even when you have it, yeah. even when you are as privileged as I am in my access to support systems and and the natural world still allowing ourselves to enter into sacred space when when we are feeling rattled and scared and alone and overwhelmed is often the hardest thing mm-hmm. and so it's that that i wish for us to join your wish that ability when the wild winds are whipping inside you or outside you that you have find it within yourself the ability to to know that you are not alone in that moment and to access sacred space rather than cut yourself off rather than resist it because you're not good enough because you're too busy because you're unworthy in some way actually just knowing that you are worthy and able to reestablish that connection to sacred space at any moment in your life. And the only thing holding you back without wanting to sound hideously new age and cheesy is yourself, your own resistance, your own belief that you are at this moment unworthy of it or unable to connect to it because it is there and it is longing for you as much as you are longing for it. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of us in the Northern hemisphere who are listening, I just feel like this is the perfect time of year to be holding this, this contemplation too. you know, like it's the time of year, at least for me of like really wanting to curl up and rest. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and find that sanctuary and, you know, nature is cooperative <laughs> of that, <laughs> you know, especially I moved to a place where it snows. So it's like, don't go outside, stay here, <laughs> stay here and rest. You don't have to be productive. So, yeah. yeah. Well, this is so great. I just, I want you to come back every year, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> I know you're working on another book, right? Are you? Or do you feel like talking about it yet? You don't have to mention it if you don't want to. I do. I'm just starting to let slip about it. So if when you're reading 
sheared the sea, you'll start seeing the breadcrumbs about what it might be. Um, I've, I've started doing that in my last few books is because, you know, one book naturally kind of they're like um, Russian dolls. You know, one lives within the next, lives within the next. And so I know where it's going because I I know where the path is taking me because the the images the symbols have started the metaphors have started emerging for me so the next one is called crow moon mm. and it is um going to really keep following that path into the exploration between word and image more you'll you'll see that over my last couple of books images have have um, moved in more and more this one is going further still and the exploration between the inner world and the outer world uh, as with she of the sea mm. um, yeah I love it well and I was thinking too about just your um, how your books end up being not you know like they just in part there's so much to them but you know that there's this meditation on um, the elements you know you've got fire and water and you know, I mean, I don't know Crow Moon yet, but I'm thinking of crows and air and, you know. I know, I so know. Great. It's rather lovely. And then, yeah, you see, I had this mom, um, moment where I'd gone into kind of basically creative shutdown after the release of She of the Sea because of the degree of anxiety that I'd felt about putting it out there. So I had to reclaim my creativity kind of gently, quietly for myself. And that was actually all to do with Earth. I'm not sure it will ever make a book. But on my Instagram, Lucy H. Pierce, um, you'll see that I made I got totally into mushrooms, into fungi and into their root structures, their um, mycelium and made lots and lots of mandalas, which I set to music. So you can see them being created and kind of emerging. Um, and I just it might that might be all it ever is. But after that wateriness, the fluidity of sheer of the sea and the amount of immersion I had, like four and a half years immersed in that, it wasn't water that I needed. It was earth. And I was drawn to it so strongly. And I wasn't able to carry on with, with Crow Moon. I wasn't able to engage with that at all. I needed the earth. So, yeah, it's very elemental for me, these, these workings, but not in an intellectual way, in a really sensory lived way it's like my soul has had too much of something and it needs something else to put it back in balance oh I love it I, I love it I think the last thing we need is more intellectual you know I mean we've got a lot of that you know right you can get that anywhere so I love it yeah <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much for being with me. This was such a treat. I love being in conversation with you. Um, it's really a treat. And me too. Yes. And so uh, Lucy's latest book is She of the Sea. It's, oh, it's, it's, it's quite wonderful. Like I just wanted to sigh as I speak about it. That's kind of how I felt in reading it. You know, it just feels like a nice big breath of fresh sea air. So uh, check it out. And I will put links to Womancraft Publishing and Lucy, your website and Instagram, anything else in the show notes. Um, yeah. And thanks to all of you guys for listening. As always, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad somebody's listening and wants to be part of these conversations. It means the world to me. And if you like the show, as always, you can um, 
you can give it a favorable review. You can, you can subscribe to it. You can tell other people about it. You can do all those things. And until next time, I will speak to you on the full moon. Take care. is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.